0: Ram Sharan is an award-winning professor from Harvard and Wharton and a worldwide expert on business strategy, execution, corporate governance, and building high-performance organizations. He sits on seven corporate boards and has worked with the CEOs of some of the world's most successful companies, including GE, Bank of America, Verizon, Coca-Cola, 3M, Merck, Aditya Birla Group, and Tata Group. He is the author or co-author of 32 books, four of them bestsellers, including Execution and Confronting Reality. His latest book is Rethinking Competitive Advantage. Rahm is known for cutting through the complexity of running a business in today's fast-changing environment to uncover the core business problem His work takes him around the globe nonstop and gives him an unparalleled, up-to-date insider view of the challenges and trends from inside the boardrooms of leading companies. Few people in the world have a pulse on the state of business like Ram does. And in this conversation, he lays out what you, as a strategist, should be focusing on now. Why should you focus on cash, not earnings? Why the smartest companies have stopped doing strategic planning and what they're doing instead? and what it takes to change the mindset of your CEO to get them to embrace the customer-centric, digital-first perspective your future will depend on. Ladies and gentlemen, Ram Sharan. Ram, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. It's great to have you. Many people know your work and your books, and what I'd like to start off with, therefore, is a little bit something personal. If you could complete this sentence for me, if you really know me, you know
1: that. Yeah, I think, Kaihan, my whole mission in life has been to think, teach, and write that which is useful to practitioners. And then working with the practitioners, I observe what are their problems, what are their concerns, and try to research those, again, observing, talking to the practitioners. Because the academic research, some is very good, good ideas, but most is very academic and not geared for practitioners. Understood. So that is what people see my book, Execution, is very practical.
0: Yes. Execution has made its way into many companies and certainly has had a huge impact. We're going to get to Execution. This is a podcast about strategy, and i like to ask every guest this question, and I never get the same answer. What is your definition of strategy?
1: I want to get you to simple definition. Great. And that is you answer a number of questions and let the concrete answers come. Number one, who are your customers and what needs are you satisfying? How clear are you? How specific are you? Number two, how would satisfying of the needs make money for the shareholders? Making money, I didn't use the word business model. And how would you balance short-term, long-term? Number three, what's your competitive advantage now against whom? And what's its shelf life? Number four, how would your market cap grow and therefore innovation, competitive product development, services, convenience for the customer? This is all organic. But the more important question of the strategy, are you increasing the addressable market? This morning, Satya Nadella showed that Microsoft is actually expanding the addressable market in some areas, You're increasing consumption. Most people want to divide the existing pie. The brilliant strategists expand the pie, create a new pie. They shape the new market space. Then you do details analysis. Now, if you take these five, six questions, one of the questions is the risk. If it has no risk, you don't have a strategy. If it is very high risk, you need to have a plan B. All this has to be in two pages, one page of numbers. Then you can do all the details. But if these two pages are not coherent, don't have a specificity, don't have integrity of intellectual honesty, it's not outside in, you don't have what I've come to call in my books, central idea.
0: A few follow-up questions. Why did you say making money and not business model?
1: See, business model is confused. Organization structure. Making money is the oldest definition without having to worry about the dialects and languages of any country, anywhere. What is the science art of making money? Mr. Bezos invented a new way to make money. Mr. Nadella is following a new way to make money. 99% of the companies in the world have not yet caught up. They measure cash per share. They don't measure EPS. If your cash per share is really the right results, EPS will follow but decisions are made differently. So money is a very old human trading. They're always measured by cash because of accounting complexity, tax regulations, currency changes, accounting got complicated, and you can have good accounting, EPS, and you can go broke. That's the difference.
0: Got it. That gives you clarity.
1: So Amazon, a Google, a Microsoft, an Apple, look at the cash hoards they have. They are cash machines.
0: In which book would someone who wanted to understand more deeply what you're saying here about focusing on cash rather than earnings per share?
1: The most recent one, Rethinking Competitive Advantage, clear chapter. Another chapter to expand your market, available market, addressable market. Create that. We call the chapter 10X. There are demonstrative examples to show. In my almost weekly work with the CEO, I stretch them to show for his business, her business, what is 10X? And suddenly the light goes on. The original invention of this concept was done in 1982 by the then CEO of Coca-Cola, Roberto Goizueta. The RNA is, he came from R&D, and it was considered company to be marketing. So at the time, I was allowed to sit in the executive committee meeting in which he laid out that we only have people consume two ounces of carbonated water in the total consumption of 62 ounces of fluids a day. Whereas his people were saying their market share was 42%, because if you just define carbonated water, you have 42% your share, Pepsi 40, 39. You feel good? Yep. So he stood up. He said, the 60 ounces is water. We need to cut into water, which they did. Now you have Amazon. It began with books, music. Now in the global economy of 100 trillion, 25 trillion is the consumption of apparel, shoes, books, music, and 20% is online, 5 trillion. That's your market size. So it's now 400 billion, grows 25% per annum. In the last two days, now the analysts caught up and they're saying it could become a trillion dollar company faster than Walmart. Well, it doesn't take a genius to figure out because it grows at 25% per annum. It takes four years. And by the way, his gross margin increases as his sales increase. Same thing in Microsoft. As their sales increase, so does the gross margin. So does the cash. A new way to do money-making, and that's part of a strategy. If the strategic people don't figure this out, they become the victim of such players.
0: So it becomes self-fulfilling. The growth increases margin, increases cash, which then reinvests in new growth. I want to hear more about the new book and also about this idea of algorithms being an engine, but just to ground it, if you could tell us a little bit about execution and what your main message or framework was
1: in that book. I first want to tell you that I've learned a lot from the practitioners in this period. I learned even more since Amazon came on the scene and there's a shift. 99% of the companies have not caught up with the shift. We used to say, Howard Business School taught that way, strategy first and then do the execution. That was the case. It's over. Strategy and execution now run simultaneously. Interesting. Big change because the speed matters. No more five-year numbers projections in a strategy. They won't last. The world changes very fast. So in the execution message, your clear goals on a time-based, your strategy the way I articulate it, what are your priorities, time-based, each priority has what Steve Jobs used to call DRI, directly responsible individual. What's the KPI? What's the incentive? What's the dashboard? What's the follow-through? And always, I repeat the word always, have external audits against which you are performing. Internal audits are very suspect. Your evaluation of your competitive advantage, internally done, is suspect of biases. Externally done, you put the mirror in front of the face.
0: What does that look like to have it externally done? Do you mean an actual financial audit by an outside
1: firm? Yeah. For example, the best way to know about competitive advantage is to observe consumers. Why do they prefer you? People will write in the boardroom, which you know I serve on seven boards. Our competitive advantage is 60% market share. That's not an advantage. That's an outcome that gives you this. Say, so, well, that market share gives me a scale and can use price and cost. You can do that. But does the customer prefer? Yes. I've been in
0: many meetings with people who have 95% customer satisfaction
1: ratings, but customers are not happy. Yes. This is hard work, intelligent honest work to see, do they really prefer? Why do they prefer? How durable is the preference? More importantly, which segment the customer does not prefer? Why? Against whom? Competition advantage is always against each competitor or coalition of competitors. It's not general.
0: How do you answer the question that probably comes up for you from people who you advise, of? I don't have time. How much time should I be spending? asking these questions and answering these questions?
1: Kaihan, good news. Everybody has only 24 hours. So we say, stop making excuses. What do you mean? Something called focus on those things that gives you high return on your time. It's a simple criteria. Learn how to say no. Learn to do things you like and don't belong in the criteria of return on time. Learn how to delegate. You get create time. Learn how to recruit better people than you are who will take things from you, create time. You talk about the
0: technology of algorithms, that it is changing business models. And so I wish you could talk to us about since when and what is the new normal and how does that change how we should be thinking about our strategic priorities?
1: First, people need to learn three things, algorithms, software, and conversion of data in digital form. The algorithm is a translation of decision-making by human beings into mathematical form. That's how they were developed. They were now developed further to become predictive. The predictive algorithm was developed in 1763. Think about that. 95% of these have been done before the end of 20th century. You can download. They're commoditized today, except for more sophisticated ones like Amazon's and Google's. Even the Google one, initial one, people are using it now, other businesses. So what is it? I and you individually can make a few decisions a day at the most. But when you have 250 million customers, you need a machine. You and I can deal with three factors, four factors, five, maybe six. Machine can deal with million factors. We have a speed, processing costs have been cut. So there is an ignorance on the part of the people who came through 50 years of writing the letter of management. Now, the key point is that the predictiveness data analysis use of algorithms expands the mental capacity by an order of millions of multiplier you become almost superhuman in decision-making because you have patterns coming out, predictiveness coming out. So it opens your mind, the problems that could have not been solved before are now being solvable. You see a Tesla, you see Amazon, you see Apple now going into cars, at least reputed to. Now, what is it? We have experts. This has been here for zillions. 1980, in defense, I was personally taken into TRW, five levels below the ground to show What they call fast finder. It is the same as you have the search sign on your cell phone. Exactly the same. But it was needed for managing the war. All the data coming in is logged in. How do you search it? Almost all of this came from those kinds of places and became commercialized. So here is the thing for strategists: If you learn what algorithms can do, you will choose different strategies. And the reason is that we were brought up in mass market, mass production, mass advertising. Today, you're going to have each individual personalization. You have today 1.6 billion phones, 250 million or so Netflix, 100 million or so Disney has it. Cannot do without algorithms. Disney came quite late into the game. Disney enabled Netflix to flourish. They gave the movie content. To Netflix in the early stages, they couldn't see that they could kill you because they were ignorant.
0: The mass market mindset, as I'm understanding it, is find a big segment, build something, it's done, and then you ship it, where an algorithmic mindset is design the algorithm to learn and make customized decisions. So you're not kind of making the decisions ahead of time, you're creating a machine that's making decisions adaptively or something like that.
1: In real time and also making a decision when you are not needed. We will fill your refrigerator two weeks later. Don't worry about it. And does this mean that organizational structures change? Do we become... Absolutely. How so? It's in my book, Fidelity, gone from several layers to three. People love it. Only two people left. They got all re-signed. People wonder when I tell them this company now has 187 teams algorithms monitor that. Total transparency, three layers. Now, there are thousands of teams in Amazon, cross-functional teams. They're empowered. They love it. They monitor it. They deliver it. There's a purpose behind their job. This job is meaningful. They can see the outcome. That's why they're excited.
0: Got it. Are there examples of companies that were built in the traditional model that are able to adapt to this team-based model that you've
1: seen? Yeah, this is the Fidelity example, I a full chapter in the book, and they have on the front part of the company. It took three years to conceive this, do it. And as I mentioned earlier, only two people left, all got reassigned. They loved it. The way Kathy Murphy did it, she conducted pilot, two pilots. They succeeded. So people came to her, why not us? Because the people got liberated. When you work in teams, only three layers, you have speed, imagination, creativity, people get liberated. That's real delegation.
0: So I have many questions that I'd like to ask, but we are coming towards the top of our time with you. What I'd like to know is if you could talk to us a little bit about being able to access a global market and that that's now maybe because of digital products and services versus physical. If you could talk to us about what the implications of that are for a strategic leader.
1: Yeah, so Kaihan, the flow of internet and very cheap access to internet removed national, cultural, government boundaries, unless a government intervenes and prevents it. It's not just consumption. It's intellectual property. It's flow of ideas. Remember, without the internet, we used to have magazines. You waited to read. You know how many podcasts get done in a day-to-day? How much information comes? Some useful, some not useful. But everybody is gearing up, and they all learn how to communicate in one hour. And therefore, the freshness of this news freshness of those new ideas is not even a day old.
0: There's a question that many of our strategy officers stumble upon that I feel you have an answer to because you're on seven boards, you advise so many CEOs, you've seen mindset shifts and you have shifted mindset. So how do you approach that when you start engaging with a company, you recognize they need to make a mindset shift. What is your approach to influence them? It's
1: not my approach alone. It's what I learned from these guys. And the best ones I've seen, they are best in knowing, reading, observing the customer. That's the reference point. Yes, you can argue Fed change interest rates. Yes, Mr. Biden's saying we're going to raise taxes. Yes, but who brings our lunch money? Not just customer today. They now have techniques to learn what the customer will want tomorrow. Tomorrow. One of the best ones was Steve Jobs, who could figure out what the customer will want, because he was able to see an old technology with the existing need, marry the two, and you create a new need. So I'll tell you, one day I was sitting in a meeting, a round table, five CEOs and I, I happened to be by chance somebody's guest, and sitting at this table was a lean and thin fellow, and there was a little dull in the period. So he said, let me tell you a story. He was the CEO of Corning Glass. He said, Steve Jobs called him and said, I want to come and see him. And he wondered, why the hell would he come and see him? 1997. He came in, brought his plane, talked to him. And he said, Wendell, I want that particular glass. Wendell said, Steve, we shut the factory in 1976. He said, open it. He said, two years. He said, no, six months. I'll give you a check. (laughs) This is the Gorilla Glass you have on these various devices. But he was planning that to see what is this thing consumer really need. Because he used to call these then cell phones as junk. And they were when you compare it. So we have people like that. And he built a business. And he led the foundation today. That is a $2 trillion company. And legitimately so.
0: So we're coming up on the top of the time. I'd like to know what are you working on now and how can people engage with you? What would be your call to action to help people engage
1: and learn from you? See, I'm working on a couple of things. Most urgent one is that everybody knows it's going to increase shortage of talent. So I'm devising, suggesting be preemptive. It's going to be here. Face it. What are the tools? How to do that? Stop running one thing at a time the cost of people is going to rise. you got to prepare now. Should you change pricing? Should you change product mix? Should you increase productivity? Should you reduce turnover? Should you preserve the people you can't afford to lose? It's real. That's one of the things. Second thing I'm saying, the global reset. There's a big reset. America, India, Japan on one side, China on the other side. Then you have technology driving this. What do you do? Which way? And that is increasing uncertainty. So I have a CEO working with me. Say, you cannot predict uncertainty. So what do you do? You become agile. Everybody heard of the agile, but they don't know how to do that. So I'm working on how, what tools you use to become agile. Agile organizationally and agile you as a leader. What does it mean? How do we observe you? How do we show you are really agile and not a rubber?
0: Yes, yes.
1: And the third thing I'm working on is, digitizing is not expensive. Not doing it is very expensive.
0: (laughs) Right, great. Very clear, three calls to action for leadership. And you have a proven track record of sensing where things are going and what we need to focus on now. So thank you for sharing that with
1: us. Thank you, Kaihan. I'm very grateful you're taking the time. And I hope my mission is anything that anybody takes from here is useful to them.
0: It is. And thank you for sharing that with us and for the work you do. Thank you. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers.